Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We did have a men's retreat. Most of the men came to the second service from the retreat, I, I see. Uh, lobby basketball until 2 a.m. Uh, outside of my room. I don't want that to happen again, Richard. No, it was a really good time, and uh, God blessed us, and we're thankful for it. Um, it is Reformation Sunday. I want to start by talking about a few uh, connected themes to draw some things together, uh, preparing in our minds, considering the themes of God's intentions for us. And I want to start by just reading selections from passages to you that are familiar, but that will help to orient your mind towards some specific things. So first from Isaiah 53, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away." And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? For the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. Then from Philippians 2, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is a these passages contain the theme you may be familiar with that we use to help ourselves and others to understand the work of Jesus Christ. And one aspect of that work is that He was obedient passively. He was obedient passively. It is called Christ's passive obedience. What does that mean? Well, He submitted Himself to actions against Himself that He didn't deserve. What we just read was his going as a lamb to be slaughtered. It was him submitting himself to this action. Well, what does this mean for us? Well, it means for us that we have redemption, that we have forgiveness of sins. It means that in John 3.16, we shall not perish but have eternal life. His passive obedience bearing our punishment means that we have a clean record. If our lives were a file of thought, word, and deed, every page would show records of violations of God's law. Mine would. 
yours would. And yet Jesus' passive submission was to bear that punishment for our sin and pay our debt, washing our record clean. All of the past is gone. It's washed clean. Now listen to a couple of more passages from Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And then from Hebrews chapter 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works, from dead works to serve the living God? A little different, something different in these passages. They still deal with Jesus' work and His sacrifice, but there's something else that's there for us to know and understand, and that is that He was without sin, that He was without blemish. Jesus was obedient. He was obedient to every specific command. He did not sin, not once. If there was a record, a file of Jesus' entire life, thought, word, and deed, where would you find a violation? Where would you find a failure? You would not. Not one. This is what is understood to be Christ's active obedience. His active obedience. What does this mean? He lived and behaved in such a way that unlike all of us, all men, men and women, he had no violations on the record of his life, no sin. What does it mean for you and for me? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin, again, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Romans 3, 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Righteousness. That's what's in it for us. His active obedience, keeping the entire law with no sin, means that we can have a new record Jesus' active obedience through living a righteous, sinless life has provided a new record full of righteousness with no sins listed against it for those who come to Him by faith. All of the future is Christ's righteousness. That's the future. This is justification. The imputing, the crediting, 
attributing of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to those who have not merited it, right? We just confessed it, spoke it in the Heidelberg, in the answer, that part that gets my tongue twisted up every time. Do you guys have the same problem? He grants these to me as if I had never had. That's the hard part. As if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. As if I had never had, he washed it away. As if I had committed all the obedience, he imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Well, Max, so far I'm with you. So far, that's great. My sin is removed from me, and Christ the sinless Messiah pays the penalty for it. Passive. The righteousness of Christ the sinless Messiah is given to me. Active. This is our justification before God. Yes, I'm there. I'm with you. Reformation Day. Yes. How do we think of this reality How do we think of Reformation Day? Like a birthday party with cakes and candles to blow out? I don't know about you. I'm liking this Reformation stuff. I like it. Let's bake a cake. Let's blow out some candles. But let's look at our text from Philippians 2. Starting with verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are some things in this after everything I just said about justification and birthday cakes that are just a little bit difficult and a little bit disturbing. And you have to think about what he says in verse 15 where he says, so that you will prove yourselves to be. Because that's key to what we're going to be talking about this morning. Well, work out. Work out your salvation. Fear and trembling. Fear and trembling? Wait a minute. But the Reformation was about grace, clean records, and perfect resumes. Wasn't that what it was about? Why fear and trembling? Well, because God has invested. (laughs) There isn't a way to say this that works. God has invested his beloved Son, to save you. 
He has given His Son. And He expects a return on His investment. He expects a people. He did it on purpose, and He expects from us our lives. Romans 7.4 My brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to Him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Disciples. God expects disciples. But even more than that, He expects sons. (laughs) He's not just made us disciples, He's made us sons through Jesus, His Son. And He expects His sons of the kingdom to be producing fruit of the kingdom of God. That's what He expects of us. Some of you, probably not many know, Martin Luther, there are some famous things he's, he's attributed with saying. One of them was this. He said, every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. Okay? Now, you hear that, and it's tricky to understand what he means. It's very tricky. What do you suppose he meant? Why preach justification every week? He was concerned that they would be forgetful, but how could they forget? Who could possibly forget the themes that we've outlined so far? Washed clean. New record. Justified. Made righteous. Gift. Who could possibly forget that? How, what would it look like? What would it even look like if... if the people that Luther was caring for forgot justification by faith. I'll tell you what it would look like. It would look like Christians who weren't disciples. That's what it would look like. It would look like Christians that weren't disciples. They would be forgetting the reason that they had been given a clean record, and they would be forgetting the reason that they had further been given a perfect record to replace it. As Phil read earlier, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, Luther pens, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. He says in another place, in regard to doctrine, we observe especially this defect that while some preach about the faith by which we are to be justified, it is still not clearly enough explained how one shall attain to this faith, and almost all omit one aspect of the Christian faith without which no one can understand what faith is or means. For Christ says in the last chapter of Luke 24 that we are to, pre- that we are to preach in His name repentance and the forgiveness of sins. 
Now many talk only about the forgiveness of sins and say little or nothing about repentance. This was Luther. He says, this would be a greater error and sin than all the errors hitherto prevailing. So everything the Reformation was a response against wasn't as bad as the idea of people thinking that they could be Christians and not be disciples. You follow me? Nothing that had happened before that time would be that bad. How do we forget that we have a clean record? Well, in 2 Peter 1, in writing to those of the faith, he says, uh, who are the same as us, who by the righteousness of God have been saved through Jesus Christ, seeing that His divine power, verse 3, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world by lust. So we are supposed to be partakers of the divine nature. And then he gives this list of things we should do. We should be applying diligence to our uh, faith, adding moral excellence to our moral excellence, knowledge to our knowledge, self-control to our self-control, perseverance to our perseverance, godliness to our godliness, brotherly kindness to our brotherly kindness, love. We're supposed to add these qualities. We're supposed to be growing. If these qualities, he says, are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are supposed to be bearing fruit for the kingdom, bearing fruit to God. This is why we were justified. But then he says, he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. They forgot that God had cleaned the slate, had cleaned the record. They forgot. You, he goes to the end of the chapter and he says, I'm going to die soon. I need to keep reminding you of this. Because I'm going to die soon. I've got to keep reminding you of this. Because I'm afraid if I, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically this. I'm afraid after I, after I die, you're going to forget. So I want you to remind yourselves. You've got to, i got to keep reminding you. It sounds just like Luther, doesn't it? What is the evidence that we have forgotten that we've been cleansed from our past sins? Well, we don't behave showing evidence of having become partakers of the divine nature. We don't bear fruit for God. Instead, we form friendships with the world. We get friendly with the world. 1 John 2, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. We love the world. The world offers us the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. What used to be called girls' golden glory, or it used to be called money, sex, and power, right? 
these are the corruptions we're, we're meant to escape. We're supposed to escape these corruptions. And yet we're enticed to them. And we're, we pursue them through our pleasures. And we find ourselves entangled in the corruptions. And what ends up happening is something, the Bible uses the word dissipation. We're going to talk about it in a second. But we, we have, our lives become dissipated. James saw these corruptions to God's people. He says in chapter 4, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And he says, when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives so that you can spend it on your own pleasures. He's just seeing, and he's talking to the church. And he's just seeing that they, are, they have the motives of the world. They have the lusts of the world. And they're tempted to the pleasures. 1 Peter chapter 4 lists the pleasures that they're tempted to. The desire of the Gentiles, it's called. The, the sensuality, the lusts, the drunkenness, the carousing, the drinking parties, the abominable idolatries. All of this, the world is surprised when Christians don't do this. We're, they're supposed to be surprised by, by what we're doing or not doing, okay? They're surprised when you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation. There's that word. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So I was reading this a few months ago, and I started thinking about that word dissipation because I suspected that I wasn't off the hook because I don't get drunk with wine, so I thought, well, there's a verse that isn't about me. Right? I got, I got, I got news for you. How many of you, I, in the first service, they wouldn't raise their hands and say they get drunk with wine either. So don't worry. But how many of you think to yourself, yeah, I don't get drunk with wine, so I'm off the hook with that. I'm off the hook with that. Well, you're on the hook because the passage I read prior said that dissipation was the hallmark of all of those ways in which the Gentiles act. Okay? What is dissipation? Why is being drunk with wine dissipating? Well, because when you're drunk with wine, the, the word literally means to, to, for something not to be saved. It's like it, it, it flows through your fingers. It, it, it evaporates. It's gone. You're drunk with wine. That's all you are. You get to the end after hours of being drunk with wine and you sleep it off and the next day you look back at the drunk with wine time and you just say, that's gone. It's gone. Maybe if they would have had dope, it would have said, do not smoke dope for that's dissipation. Because your life is gone and you're in your, your parents' basement. Okay? But regardless, dissipation is your life just going, going. It's spent. It's, it's uh, wasted. It's a wasting. It's not saved. It's wasted. Squandered. So what qualifies as dissipation of your, of your time, your energy, your money? When God has plans for you, what qualifies as dissipation for you? Friendship with the world is dissipation. 
James 4, he says, you adulteresses, don't you know? He's talking to the church. (laughs) He's talking to the church. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Has Christ borne your sins on the cross so that you can let your life evaporate in dissipation? If you think so, you have sinned against his passive obedience and are not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. He died on the cross to clean your slate, not so that you could just keep filling it at at will. And so it sins against him when we do this, and we presume on him in this way. So how do we further forget that we've been given a new record? How do we forget that we have further been given a new record? So we had a clean record. How do we forget we've been given a new record? So this is from Hebrews chapter 6. You know in Hebrews chapter 5 at the end, Paul's talking about Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is the... the, the, uh, mysterious priest that Abraham meets after the battle, I think, where he liberates uh, Lot. And Abraham takes and offers to Melchizedek a tithe. And Melchizedek is uh, described as a, a priest, a man without, without days. And so Christ is like Melchizedek. And, and so Hebrews, is it, the, the author is writing to try to say, the Holy Spirit is telling them, you should be able to hear this and understand it, but you're too young. You, you, just, you're, you, you haven't grown up enough yet. And he's disappointed with you because you haven't grown up enough yet. You should be having solid food, but you still need milk. I still have to mix up formula. I still have to pour in the powder and mix up formula and give you this formula, is what he's telling them. And because if they had known, they would be able to teach the the. the principles that that they ought to be able to know uh, teach, but they weren't able to teach. So in chapter 6, he starts the chapter by just listing a few of what are called the elementary principles, the basic things that the people are rebuked for not knowing how to teach. He says, we'll teach you again. Let me mix it up again for you, and I'll tell you again. But then he lists them, and it's fascinating because the first one he lists is uh, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Well, I read that, and suddenly it struck me, why, did, why was that one of the ones? Why, why didn't it start off by saying, not laying again the foundation of repentance from sinful actions? Why did it start with dead works? You follow what I'm getting at? And so, he's basically saying that dead works and trusting in dead works is something to be repented of. It's not something to be engaged in, but repented of. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, uh, We are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on and he talks about how he, Paul, could put a lot of confidence in the flesh if he wanted to because, you know, he was 
what? Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. You know, Paul was just like that rich young man when he came to Jesus and he said, he said, what must I do? And Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. And he says, I've done it. Paul was there. He said, I as to the law, I'm blameless. But Paul knew something and was... Uh, had engaged in something that the rich young man wouldn't engage in. Paul became the disciple. He was saved. And he believed. And he said, I have all of these things that I could, that I could hold up to God. And he said, I just think they're all rubbish. They're all rubbish. They're worthless. What confidence would you hold up to God? What thing would you hold up to God and say, you know, hey... I'm better than, uh, who's safe to, to look at? Uh, let's see. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, I'm better than David uh, Baker. Hey, David's going here. <laughs> who, who are you looking at? Who are you thinking about? You do this, I know you do, because I do it. Don't. And in those, in those thoughts, at that very moment, you are forgetting. You are forgetting that elementary principle, that elementary truth. At that very moment. But then what else do you do, you know? Uh, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go around with girls who do. You guys remember that? Well, it's, it's silly, but this is just how how nonsensical we are about thinking that we have something that we can go and present to God and say, hey, look what I got. You're going to be glad about this. Here's a great big pot of me. (laughs) If you get my meaning. Have you spurned the righteousness of Christ for an attempt to be justified before God through your dead works? You really want to go with your record? Is that what you want? If so, you have sinned against His active obedience and are clothed in filthy rags. Luther says, Many now talk about the forgiveness of sins and say little or nothing about repentance. This is a greater error and sin than all the errors hitherto prevailing. And this is the terrible state of the evangelical church in America. This is us. These are our people. We are them. And the alternative to these sins is to be a disciple of Christ, being a Christian. We are called to be disciples. We're called to obedience. Not an obedience that justifies us before God, but an obedience that verifies our justification before men and before ourselves. If you want to know if you're in Christ, look and see if there's any evidence of it in your behavior. Matthew Henry says, the justification of which Paul speaks is different 
from that spoken of by James, the one speaks of our persons being justified before God, the other speaks of our faith being justified before men. James says, show me thy faith by thy works, and let thy faith be justified in the eyes of those that behold thee by thy works. But Paul speaks of justification in the sight of God, who justifies those only that believe in Jesus and purely on account of the redemption that is in him. Thus we see that our persons are justified before God by faith, but our faith is justified, verified, before men by how we live our works. And it's also verified in our own hearts. You want confidence before God? Look, see if you're in Christ. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are supposed to be producing fruit. That's the evidence that we have been placed in Jesus Christ. I've been reading The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you want to get depressed, uh, there you go. And I'm going to take something that he says about people with Reformation doctrines, and I'm going to paraphrase it, okay? Bonhoeffer says that champions of the Reformation often use their claim to be, quote, children of Luther, those are my words, unquote, with the sinister motive of avoiding discipleship. Sinister is his word, okay? Okay? And he places this at the end of a long paragraph where he's talking about some really bad ways that we attempt to hide our light and not shine before men. Our avoiding of our discipleship. Children of Luther. Guess what? God can raise up children of Luther and Calvin from the stones. Or Abraham or anybody. We are to do the works of discipleship, the works of sonship. Is discipleship easy? Well, yes. Because it's done in Jesus Christ with all of His present benefits. I might as well ask you, was it easy for Stephen to be martyred? That was his work, wasn't it? Was that Stephen's work, one of them? Was that easy? Did he find that, that, uh, uh, that yoke easy and that burden light? Who was there when he was martyred? What did he say? Do you remember what did he say? Somebody. Louder. I see the Son of God. In the context of his following, come all those, come to me, all you are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Because he's there. We're in Christ. That's what a disciple is in Christ. Is discipleship easy? Uh, yes. And no, 
And listen to these words. I'm just going to read some quick places from Scripture. You'll recognize them, right? In reference to describing this work of discipleship. Put on the full armor of God. Is that so you can have a military parade? No. Run the race. Put your hand to the plow. Resist a roaring lion. Take up your own cross daily. Put to death the deeds of the body. Stand firm in the faith. Make sure about His calling and choosing you. Those are all things that we're supposed to be about that are calling us to the work of discipleship. You owe the work of Jesus a proper response. You owe His sacrifice and His obedience a proper response. There is no salvation outside of discipleship. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Holding fast is an interesting thing because uh, we all have an, a picture of how it is to hold fast, but I don't know how to pull one out of your mind. And as I said in the first service, I, I've seen these uh, YouTube video of a guy roasting coffee, which is, watching these videos is dissipation, okay? <laughs> so, roasting coffee, and when somebody roasts coffee, what do they do? They, uh, they put it in the oven and they go to the market, Right? No, that's not what I saw. I saw these guys with this in the machine, and maybe they're turning it, or maybe it's turning itself, and then they're reaching in and pulling out every, every 30 seconds. They're reaching in and checking the color and checking the sheen and how shiny, and, you know, and they're looking at it and looking at it, and all of a sudden they go, oh, 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 and then they flip it so that it gets cool, so that it stops the process. They've got to catch it just at that right moment, Right? This is your life in Christ. Hold fast. Have you been thinking about your following of Christ? Have you think, are, you, are you laying in bed? You know, David talks about laying in bed. If you're laying in bed and you're thinking about your life, your repentance, your needs to, to get rid of this sin or that sin, are you holding fast? Are you seeking life in Christ? Reformation Sunday deserves a cake. It deserves a cake. But it should never be eaten at the table of self-deception. Never. It deserves a cake. But it should not be eaten in self-deception. Every song we sing, every confession, every catechism answer, where there is a reference to what Ephesians calls the unfathomable riches of Christ, 
must not be made in self-deception. If you have no fear and trembling as you hold fast the word of life, you are likely deceived. And one of two things is likely true. You, you have either presumed on your forgiveness and are sinning against Christ's sacrifice, or you've presumed on your own righteousness and are sinning against His perfect life. And both of those are abominable. Both are demonstrations of cheap grace, and cheap grace is no grace. Cheap grace is no grace. So Jesus says in Luke 18, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? And Luther says, every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. Every week I preach bear fruit to God to my people because every week they forget it. Every week I preach hold fast the word of life to my people because every week they forget it. Every week I preach to myself these things because you know why? Every week I forget it. We must hold fast. There's no greatness about this day. <laughs> 505. Woohoo! If we're all just self deceived. God calls us to be disciples. He calls us to be sons. He calls us to bear fruit for the kingdom. He calls us to bear fruit to Himself. This is, this is what Jesus came to bring us into and that we must engage in or be liars or be false. I want to end with a poem that's a, a favorite poem of mine uh, in in the hymn, A Mighty Fortress, he talks about this world being of de with devils filled, right? And this poem has the word hobgoblins in it, which is, which is fascinating. Do you ever deal with hobgoblins? Because I do. I deal with all kinds of hobgoblins. In my heart, in my mind, in the world around me, in the middle of the night, I deal with hobgoblins. And that's just one of the things that we have to fight as we march forward as believers and disciples of Jesus Christ. But I love this poem. It's from the latter part of the second book of Pilgrim's Progress, and it's a poem recited by a character named Valiant for Truth, if you know the book. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, read it, and then read it again. until read, Keep reading it until you understand it. Get something, get a version that's easier if you need to and then read it every five to ten years of your life because there's so much Scripture in it and so much of the reality and the psychology of being a Christian and a disciple that you will be provoked every time in a new way. So I want to encourage you about that. The Bible first and foremost, and not the same. Okay? The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Who would true valor see? Let him come hither. One here will constant be. 
Come wind, come weather, there's no discouragement shall make him once relent. His first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. Whoso beset him round with dismal stories, do but confound themselves. His strength the more is. No lion can fright. He'll with a giant fight, but he will have a right to be a pilgrim. Hobgoblin nor foul fiend can daunt his spirit. He knows he at the end shall life inherit. Then fancies, dissipations maybe, fancies fly away. He'll fear not what men say. He'll labor night and day to be a pilgrim. Brothers and sisters, we have to follow Jesus Christ. We have to follow, and seriously. We have to follow him seriously. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you today that the work of Jesus Christ is so marvelous as to carry us and justify us and make us holy before you. And we thank you for this is your kind love demonstrated. And you did it when, when we hadn't even acknowledged you in any way. We, you did it when we were fighting against you and reviling and rebelling. You did it while we were yet sinners, and we thank you. And Father, you have the expectation that having purchased sons for yourself, that we would live like sons. And we have so often fallen short of that daily. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Give us eyes to, receive where, to see where we need to repent. And give us hearts that will repent. Father, work in us the willing and the doing of your good pleasure and help us to hold fast. Oh Lord, help us. We bless your name today and we give you thanks and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.